When you hear about some of the world's best investors, it's not often that they come from government housing, from a middle-class at-best family with limited financial knowledge from country South Australia. Our next guest, though, has come from exactly that and built a very successful investing career. Nathan Bell, today's guest, wasn't a wizard school. He just worked very, very hard and knew his investing philosophy. Nathan went from a role as financial analyst at Deutsche Bank into work at Intelligent Investor, where he's worked his way to portfolio manager. Recently, Nathan has been a key part in the launch of Intelligent Investor's new fund, the Intelligent Investor Select Value Fund, an actively managed ETF that can invest in market-leading companies locally and worldwide. Hello and welcome back to The Business Of. I'm Will. And I'm Charlie. On today's podcast, Nathan outlines his career to date and gives us some great advice for anyone wanting to pursue a career as a research analyst or client advisor. He gives us a rundown on the new fund and some companies in the fund. He tells us some stories behind his best investments. And finally, he gives us three of his favourite small caps right now. And before we begin, please don't take financial advice from a podcast. Nothing said on this podcast constitutes financial advice. We hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome back to The Business Of. Today, we are very lucky to be joined by Nathan Bell um, from Intelligent Investor. How are you, Nathan? Good, thanks, boys. Thanks for joining us. Really keen for this one to hear about your career and um, all things Intelligent Investor. So, I guess we'll start with your career, Nathan. So, it's our understanding that prior to being a professional investor at II, you were an accountant, including five years spent at Deutsche Bank. So, can you speak to your time there and sort of how you ended up at Deutsche Bank? Yeah, uh, I'll try to keep the story short, but uh, <laughs> didn't get a great score in Year Twelve, which was disappointing because uh, I was I got high marks at school early on, and I think I thought I'd just cruise through. Mm-hmm. And, uh, got to year 11 and did all the hard subjects like chemistry and physics and realized I was out of my depth. Mm. So I dumbed it down because I, I grew up in Mount Gambier in country South Australia and you get extra points for being at a country school. Mm. So I, I dumbed down my subjects a lot and uh, didn't get a great score. Some of that was for lack of effort. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I put in all my mates went to Adelaide Uni, which is the top uni in Adelaide. Mm. And I actually got a decent score. I could have actually got into what I wanted, which was accounting, because to me that was just the closest thing to business. Mm. And my whole life, you know, I couldn't tell you when the light bulb went off. I've just known all my life I wanted to be an investor. Mm. It seemed to be this place where if you had a bit of fortitude, you're patient and long-term, you made a lot of money. So it was, it was less about filling in spreadsheets or necessarily knowing a lot about listed companies. It was more the the personal behavioural aspects that I just seemed to know. Um, and which, which I uh, didn't do a very good job for the next 30 years of listening to, but <laughs> much, it's much more difficult in practice than uh, you think it is. But in terms of accounting, it was the closest thing to business. Um, I didn't get into Adelaide Uni um, like I should have, and I put at the, my last choice was economics at Flinders Uni, which was the lowest score in anything finance-related. It's <laughs> what I got into. Uh, I basically didn't finish studying until I was 30, um, but I was always very practical. My parents divorced just before I turned 10. We had mm. no money to start with, so you divide nothing by zero and mm. all of a sudden you're in government housing. And, um, you know, not that I cared too much as a kid. I mean, everyone around me was fine. It was a safe area, but you think about the strain your parents went through. Mm. And that lives with you because we never had any money after that. And I just didn't want to be poor anymore. And if you look at the what most successful investors, the background they come from, at least in terms of the 
sort of famous US hedge funds, hedge fund managers. Mm. Now, a lot of them are very smart and they create hedge funds and um, you know, that's what they're into. But there's there's two other ways. One is generally people have had some sort of association with the racetrack. <laughs> so, Don't mind a punt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so if you even if you read about Buffett, he talks about learning about the probabilities of horse races early on. <laughs> And so you learn about the probabilities, um, you, you know, and handicapping the horses in the race. And that, that's mm. basically investing is and then sizing your bets. And the other one is just the background that I said where you just want to don't want to be poor anymore and um, finance or investing seems to be the way out. But I was always very practical. I, I really wanted a job out, so out when I got out of uni and accounting was the most practical course you could just about do, I reckon. Mm, mm, for sure. And a lot of people speak about accounting being a great uh, basis for understanding value um, and understanding sort of how these com- the presentation of financials and be- really being able to conduct that financial analysis on some of these companies. Can you speak a bit to how your accounting skills might have helped you or if they haven't helped you at all, speak- <laughs> you can also <laughs> feel free to say that. <laughs> well, Warren Buffett always talked about accounting as being the language of business. Yeah. I, I don't think you need to go and work as an accountant to, to understand it. Accounting is actually fairly easy. Yeah. Uh, Investing is far more about understanding what a you know the competitive advantage of a business. What does a business actually mm. do? You know, mm. what can a business look like in ten to twenty years? And to me, that's where the real money's made. Yeah, I think um, I hope I make this point clear. But something I've been thinking a lot about lately is that when because I had that real practical nature, I always wanted to be doing something that was going to get me a job. Mm. And most important, I wanted to be an investor. But I think number one, I wanted to be an analyst. Yep. And that's quite different to a lot of other people who just want to get rich or be wealthy. And although you're actually looking for inspiration in the same places, it's actually quite a different thing to actually doing something that's going to create, make you wealthy and actually trying to be a good analyst that can hold down a job. And I was too focused on the job and not necessarily seeing the bigger picture about how you can really create wealth. And the reason I say that is because when I came into Intelligent Investor, there was all these amazing stocks that I just thought you were going to be picking all these wonderful stocks for the rest of your life. And it just turned out that in that period, it was just a really good time to be buying these wonderful growth companies. I joined Intelligent Investor in 2006, which was just before the GFC. So I had just enough time to follow some bad stock ideas by my compatriots. (laughs) And uh, the lesson learned there was do your own homework and follow your own uh, research rather than following other people, even though you think they're smarter than you. Um, they, they may invest differently, they may not be smarter than you and they just may do things differently and so you really got to follow your own work and I wish I just bought the stocks that I told other people to buy mm. uh, and mm. we probably wouldn't be having this conversation, I'd be sitting on the beach somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so I've learned the hard way about what Munger and Buffett have been trying to tell people for 50 years and that's really just buy well once and sit on your hands. Yeah, mm. yeah no, that's great advice. So we'll get stuck into... Um, the markets, I guess. So what is your current take on the state of the Australian economy and what are the key drivers and metrics that, that you monitor? Yeah, so the, I mean, the first thing I'd say is we're value investors. So yeah. we're all about valuing businesses. And to circle back to my point I made before, I think as an analyst, we get too caught up in, because if you just do a job for a big firm, especially like a broker is a good example, where they want to know, they want you to do a discounted cash flow statement come up with a valuation for the business and show every line of the P&L on the balance sheet and, mm. uh, you know, and show how those earnings and, and the cash is going to grow over time. And, okay, this is, you know, such and such. 
and therefore for all these reasons this company should trade on a price earnings ratio of 25 mm. and and that's what i was too focused on what you really want to be focused on is finding businesses that are going to be much bigger and better and stronger over the next 10 to 20 years because again as i found out the hard way more recently is i decided to open a family trust which i should have done years ago <laughs> and i uh, transferred uh, some stocks with some big profits on them over so i had this big tax bill oh. uh, I had the tax bill at the same time that some of these stocks more than halved. Oh, so, filthy. Uh, the, the pain, I just cannot explain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's uh, terrible. These were big numbers. These were like the first time in my life I'd really made some serious money. Maybe mm. not by our standards, but by any other normal standards. <laughs> <laughs> so this idea that Munger and Buffett have been telling you about compounding in this tax-friendly environment where you don't have to sell these stocks just works so much better and so that's where the, the real focus should be. Yeah, no, for sure. Makes sense. And I guess uh, moving back towards the Australian economy, um, what do you think the impact of interest rates will continue to be in 2023? Or do you think it's sort of all very much priced in at this point? Yeah, Peter Lynch always talks about, um, it's a famous line that a lot of people quote, but they misquote it. And he says, if you spend 10 minutes on economic forecasting, you wasted 10 minutes. Uh. <laughs> um, now, the quote that people actually say is, if, if you spent um, 10 minutes analysing the economy or macro trends and things, you've wasted 10 minutes. Now, th those are two very different things, forecasting mm -hmm. and actually being aware of your environment are two completely different things. But, but what we do know is that basically in the long term, if you're buying the right business, you can really ignore the economy. It's just yeah, yeah. irrelevant over time. But to answer your question more directly, the fact is the environment has changed. We've got most of the silliness has been priced out now. Yeah. So, you know, the points bets and Temple and Webster's and Kogan's and all these things have lost people a lot of money. I found out about before. points bet the hard way. Uh, <laughs> yeah. bought, them at, bought them at 12 bucks. <laughs> it's funny, My first uh, ever investment. Yeah. <laughs> It's funny, a, um, an analyst that was on the team at the time, he talked about his biggest regret. Uh, what happened is he left the business and got another job, but we were talking about a year ago. And his, his biggest mistake, he said at the time, maybe it was two years ago, uh, was not buying points bet because <laughs> at, at, at the bottom of the COVID bear market, I think he might have even been sub $1. Yeah. And uh, I think it actually had something like more cash. Uh, it either had a lot of cash or actually the value of the cash was more valuable than the entire business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, Pretty amazing. Now, that stock, I think, went to $16 or maybe it was $19. Yeah. Something, yeah. And yeah. It was Around when Will bought. <laughs> that's, that's right. So, But now the stock's back at a dollar where it deserves to be mm. for fundamental reasons. And you ask yeah, yourself, yeah. can it be the biggest regret when this business has actually gone nowhere, like share price-wise? Mm. always wondered, it's impossible to do the calculation, but I always wonder how much of our returns are actually made by what what are essentially short-term momentum increases in earnings yeah. rather than actually, you know, if you measured that business, uh, its returns and profits, growth and all that stuff over 20 years, mm. very few companies make money. It's, um, I'm sorry for going off on a bit of a tangent, but uh, oh, a statistic that stuck with me recently, which I just really – you know, any young person who's starting investing, I just you've got to realise the power of this. Mm. And that is, last hundred years in America, basically all the returns have come from four percent of the stocks. Far out. Well, and, and it's actually worse than that because there's a few giant companies that actually make up most of that four yeah, percent. So yeah. all the money is only made out of this absolutely microscopic proportion of listed companies. Where should you spend your time? Yeah, 
Um, so that's been a real lesson. So in terms of the economy, the environment's clearly changed. If you're going to own banks or other retail sort of cyclical businesses, you need to be very aware of what's coming. We've got the tail end of the people with fixed mortgages that roll mm, off. Yeah. Um, they don't actually all roll off until the end of next year, but there's a big rump through the next six months. So that's changing. Like I, I know even my rent here in, in sort of inner Sydney, our rent's gone up, uh, is going up 18%. Jesus. Oh, yeah. uh, my, my son, who we kicked out of the place <laughs> a year ago, so we couldn't live with him another day. Uh, <laughs> now, he's in a place that's like 10% as good as what we live in, but he pays half the rent and they just put his rent up 20%. That's ridiculous. Oh, far out. So, got this, so that's going to impact you know, people's spending, obviously. Yeah. But the question for me more is what's going to happen in the stock market? What's going to happen to profit margins and valuations? And are we going to get some sort of major financial crisis that could give us you know, a huge buying opportunity? Mm. And, and my answer to that is my guess is there won't be a GFC-style moment, but obviously anything can happen. But you, you don't want to invest based on a, potentially a once-in-70-year event happening. No, yeah, yeah. no exactly. No, and um, you, so, sorry, Nathan. You mentioned um, a, a small, sort of small amount of companies that produce the that um, the total earnings for the market. I guess it, moving beyond Australia, you guys have probably identified that as an issue in Australia. There's very few companies that actually perform uh, perform well and make make up most of the economy over a long period. So I, I noticed you guys have sort of looked overseas towards US and a few few different markets in, internationally. Can you speak to? the emergence of your new, um, I don't want to get the name wrong, I'll let you speak to it, but your new fund? <laughs> so the the fund is called uh, Intelligent Investor Select Fund. Yep. So the select isn't uh, like our other funds, which are actually called the Growth Income and Ethical Funds, so they actually explain on the side of the tin what uh, is inside the tin. Yep. Uh, <laughs> the difference with this fund is that the best way to outperform is to have the most investment options. Mm. And and the reason you don't see so what it is is actually it's a mixed fund it's it's a mostly international fund but it's allowed to own some Australian stocks yeah yeah and that's actually rare because what happens in our industry is that you get every fund gets pigeonholed so yeah. the value small cap mid cap large cap international or domestic um, you know or maybe it's an infrastructure fund or whatever. So, and what happens if you actually want to get the big investors, so the big institutional investors to invest in your fund and then you can get rich, mm. then you have to go through three major gatekeepers in Australia. And if you're going to go through the gatekeepers, they don't want to see mixed funds. They just want to see you pigeonholed so that when these massive pension funds around the world who manage incredible amounts of money mm. are looking for a certain style to plug into their portfolio, it just complicates things when you've got a mixed portfolio. You don't actually mm. tick the box of them. So, yeah. so this sort of or this idea of having Australian stocks in a global fund is actually quite rare. But there are a number of funds that do it. And every time I look at these funds, at least the ones I follow, uh, which is a fairly small group, mm. their performing fund by a mile is always a mixed fund. Mm-hmm. Usually, it's an international fund that can own some Aussie stocks, but there, there, there is uh, one example I can think of that's called the Australian fund, even though it has a bunch of US stocks in it. But just, uh, but the way the industry works, it really tries to take away all your advantages. So, if you want to pass those gatekeepers, you've got to worry about liquidity, for example. Um, you know, they want to know how much money you can manage, all this type of stuff. And just to give you like a couple of the things, you know, I have to deal with as portfolio manager at. Intel's investor, we've got an ethical fund, so it can only invest in ESG stocks. 
Uh, there aren't many of them, and they're the ones that people seem uh, love, so they very, very rarely trade cheaply. Mm. We've got an income fund, which is really, really hard to beat the market with yeah. uh, because the big income payers aren't very growthy, and, no. um, and uh, you know, it's hard to differentiate, differentiate yourself. But also, all our funds are actively managed ETFs, so you can just buy the funds on the market like you buy an ordinary stock, yeah. which is fantastic. But they also come with liquidity rules. So, for example, we can't own any more than 20% maximum in stocks with a market value of $500 million. Ah, right. Mm. And for an ex- and as an example, it's actually more it's tighter than that because there are a bunch of liquidity rules about how much of the company stock we can own and how much trades per day. Mm. So a company like Infratil, which is like a $7 billion business, it's headstocks listed in New Zealand, but it's also listed in Australia, falls into that small cap category because it doesn't trade many shares, even though it's a $7 billion. Yeah. <laughs> small cap at $7 billion. <laughs> That's right. So so you think about all the things you want as an, as an investor. You want to invest anywhere, anytime, um, you know, in any type of market and any type of size. You want maximum options, and that's the best way you're going to be able to produce the biggest returns. And here we are as professionals, and we've got liquidity constraints, you know, thematic constraints, income, ethical, all these types of things. And so the the point of this fund is really we're opening up 97% of the rest of the world's stocks. Wow. And, hmm. we're, and we're really just trying to look for more of what we look for in Australia. And that is, one, just a fantastic business. There's probably about a dozen of them in Australia, and that's it. Hmm. Uh, we Personally, I really like owner-managers. We've got skin in the game. It's really yeah. important to me. It's not the, it's not the number one thing. I mean, having a, bet, a good business is the number one. Yeah. And then the third part of that is valuation and the, what you can get for, you know, a bit of jargon here for maybe that some people aren't sort of investors yet. But for 23 or 24 times earnings in Australia, you're buying Woolworths, which has basically got no growth. Mm-hmm. Very little growth and it's mature. I mean, how many more Woolworths stores does Australia need? Yeah, great point. <laughs> but that, that sort of multiple in America, you can buy some of the best businesses in the world. So it's just chalk and cheese. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess. Um, would you be able to speak to one or two of the key holdings of the fund briefly? We saw um on your Equity Mates podcast that you did, you t- you spoke about Mastercard and Floor and Deco. So maybe um two different ones. Two different ones. Um, yeah. Like this, I wouldn't necessarily tell people to go and buy this because one of the reasons the way we've structured this fund is particularly for our audience is people that might understand the opportunities overseas but have just never had the research or resources or yeah. someone to go and do it. So it's a massive time it. thing, isn't it? Absolutely. So we've tried to keep this uh, business really basic in the sense that this fund basic in the sense that this isn't going to be filled with esoteric Chinese stocks that you've never heard of <laughs> here overnight. Uh, so that's why we sort of core Mastercards and Visas. But um, just just one stock, just as an idea, I, again, is one of the riskier ones. It, it's an Indian bank, um, and it's hard to get exposure to India, even though the fundamentals. And if you look at some of the growth rates in the businesses and their competitive advantage, are just incredible. Oh, it's but, crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Problem is, you know, I don't know what the number is. Ninety-nine percent of them uh, only. Um, you can only buy them on the Indian stock exchange. Yeah, really yeah, yeah. Buy them. <laughs> so because it's difficult to get the license, there are a handful that are listed uh, on the uh, in America as ADRs, authorized depository receipts. Yeah. Um, there's an fee you have to pay on them to just be aware. Just, again, this is not a recommendation, but it's just an example of how different things can be in mm. other 
in the world. But this business, HDFC, it's a bank, and it's grown earnings per share around, on average, for the last 20, I think it's 28 or 25 years, at, at over 30%. Wow. Um, it's <laughs> it's just cool. And the, the, the comp- competitors for this bank are a lot of public banks, so government-owned banks. So, And it, basically, it seems to me that the government banks have to take on all the bad credits uh, and the less, well, less wealthy people. And so when things turn bad, the bad debts just explode. Mm-hmm. And, but HDFC just hasn't had that problem. And it had, used to have a, a CEO that ran the business for a long time and he's handed it over to his offsider in recent years. But this business is still growing earnings per share at at least 20% a year. <laughs> and the number of people with a bank account in India is microscopic. Like the the finance industry in that country is only like it still at stage one. Yeah. Uh, so it's already at these gross rates just by doing simple banking, doing things well. Again, I wouldn't tell anyone to put twenty percent of their portfolio in it. Um, but you compare this to the in two thousand six, you could have bought ANZ, NAB, or Westpac, and today you'd see the same share price seventeen years later. And I just I don't know. <laughs> What I don't understand is why more people don't talk about this. This is 17 years with no capital gains and with the most incredible credit and housing boom in history that will never be repeated, at least not in my lifetime, and the share prices haven't moved. That's crazy. I had no idea. (laughs) I mean, in 2006, you could have bought, I don't know what I was doing at the time, but I was was a bit late. But MasterCard was a company that had been around for 40 years Hmm. It was easy to see the competitive advantages this business had. It was easy to see how good it was. It's up nearly a hundredfold since then. Yeah. Far out. Like it's just you know these you just can't find those sorts of opportunities in Australia. So when you've got the world to look at, and uh, you know I've been investing overseas since two thousand and seven, I think, and did it full time for three years. So hmm. a lot of experience. It's not something I would tell people to rush out and necessarily do, but. When I first become an investor, an intelligent investor, I just wanted to become the best analyst that I could. Again, I think it was slightly misdirected. I should have just been thinking about trying to get rich and what sort of companies make you know put people mm. in the be rich list. I yep. think that's yeah. the <laughs> thing that's far better to think about because there's so few. When you think like that, there's so few companies that can do that. Yeah, that really, that's make, so true. Really zero in on those you know those four percent of companies I talked about that can do that. Mm. No, I guess, and and you speak about there's not many companies that can do that. I guess, how do you go? How do you go about sifting through the ones that are never going to do that for you and the ones that will? Like, what's your what's the sort of pro- research process that yeah. I guess you and some of the team at um, I, I try and adopt? Yeah, so so in Australia it's much easier just because the number of stocks is just much smaller. I know there's you know two thousand. I think last time I looked was a long time ago. There's like twenty three hundred odd stocks listed. Yeah. Um, I can't remember the exact math the way I cancelled them all out, but like, basically half of them don't make any money. Um, yeah. yeah. Wild speculations. Um, another half of them are resources companies, which I don't invest in because money gets lost every time. <laughs> <laughs> then there's uh, a bunch of you know, just what I would call very lousy, poor quality companies. Yeah, like, basically, like points yeah. bet. what you actually get to when you run through the numbers is there's probably only about a hundred max maybe a few more uh businesses in australia that i actually think are are really investable Mm. Uh, that's not to stop people speculating and finding trying to find the next csl and all that sort of stuff but i'm talking about serious investing with proper businesses that are entrenched in their market positions and good balance sheets all that type of stuff yeah Yeah. there really isn't many of them at all so it's actually 
you know, Warren Buffett, when he always um, wittily answered that whenever, whenever someone come up to him and said, uh, where do I start? And he'd say, with the A's. <laughs> yeah, right. you know, I've been learning the guitar for nearly three years now, and there's just no escape from doing the hours. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, you can you can learn well, and that's really important to focus on the right things. But you've just got to do the hours. And as much as Charlie Munger's always telling you to try and learn as many lessons from other people as you can, so you don't have to learn them yourself. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, you just have to learn a lot of investing lessons the hard way, yeah, and, exactly. and you'll and you'll always be learning them. There's no things change. You know, I've been doing this for a long time now, and even I still think about the way I invest and the way the team invests and what we're focused on and all those types of things, it's, it's always evolving and that's actually what I like about the job. There's no two days are the same. Mm, mm. And I suppose when, say, let's say one of your team comes up with an idea, like Nick Cummings, he's a new analyst you guys have. Um, say, Let's say Nick comes up with an idea. How do you guys go about sort of uh, fleshing that idea out and critiquing it and really understanding whether it's something you're going to go and recommend to your um, subscribers? Yeah, it's interesting the the basics of understanding a business are actually just a matter of doing the work. Yeah. And the more you do it, like you can just do it very quickly. Uh, when you're looking at something like Macquarie Group back in the GFC and it's got 20 pages of related party account stuff, like hmm. you need to get, read that stuff. Uh, does that, there was actually a good quote um, from a, I can't remember who it was recently. It said something about you spend the first half of your career in the footnotes. Um, <laughs> And it's so true because you're you're so scared of making a mistake. Uh, And my always used to wonder why it took me so long to analyse a stock. It was just because I was reading every damn word in the in every annual report to make sure I wasn't missing anything. But you get the experience and you get a bit of wisdom, and you realise that you don't normally you don't really have to focus on that stuff. If you're if you're fishing in the right pond, Mm. focus all what you're all you're focusing on is competitive advantages and pricing power. And, and is this the sort of business you want to own for the next 20 years? Mm. So the actual research is, is really basic stuff. Um, but if you're buying a good business, you don't have to worry about the balance sheet because it's not going to be, you know, indebted up to its eyeballs. Yeah. You don't have to worry. There's, just, there's so many things you don't have to worry about when you stick to quality. The, the most important thing you're trying to uh, imagine is how those competitive advantages could come undone. Mm. Uh, that's why you have a diversified portfolio because if you've got 28 companies and three or four of them over time lose their competitive edge, then that's fine. The, the rest of them will do well. But, but that's really where the focus is. The, the, fun, the, the numbers and things is, is all just basic stuff. And it's really just trying to just think about how a business might evolve. And, and that's to me, I'm um, going off another tangent here, but when you come in as an analyst into a, into a professional organisation, you, you don't want to be the – no one wants to be that clown yeah. who – and it says, yeah, here's this speculative resources company and it's, it could go up 20 times if X, Y, and Z happens and it never does. It always ends up going broke. But on the flip side, what it, what it actually does is it stops you from being imaginative on how the great companies can evolve over the next 20 years because you don't want to sound like an idiot that this business could go up tenfold. Mm. And actually, that's and that's where the money's made. You know, I remember upgrading CSL in 2009, I think it was, and it was thirty-two or thirty-three dollars, and I remember thinking, if this goes to forty bucks, I'll be happy. And mm. and I didn't buy, I didn't buy any. Uh, you know, I'd done all the research. You know, Gorev, my colleague, my two IC, you know, he bought it, and made a heap of money. It's gone up like tenfold since then. <laughs> and, uh, I I just didn't have the ability to think what this business could become in ten years. Same with Domino's. I 
tell you a funny story about that, but I was going to put it through our Dragon's Den, which is what we, uh, when someone has a new idea and want to you know, recommend it as a buy idea, then we have the Dragon's Den and they just, it's a pleasure thing. We don't try to, um, we're not mercenaries or anything. It's a, it's a fun thing. And yeah. uh, <laughs> we go through it. I remember Steve Johnson, who you might know, uh, who comes from Intelligent Festival, started Forager. Yep. Yeah. He walked behind my desk and I had the presentation of Domino's open. Stock price was about $3. Oh. These prices were high. The Victorian stores weren't performing very well and there's a bit of pressure on the stock and, and it hadn't been listed very long. And I had one guy, another smart guy, Wayne Jones, who runs Gaines, and he was telling us this Don Mays, the best CEO I've ever seen. He's, he, he was initially a, a driver. Um, <laughs> and now he's like a billionaire and driving Lamborghinis and whatever he does. Yeah. You know, I just, you know, I was so close to upgrading it. And then, you know, I hadn't been in the job very long. And Steve walks past me and goes, who do these idiots think they are going to Europe, thinking they can sell pieces, pizzas to Europeans? <laughs> and, and, I, and that was enough for me at the time to go, well, what's the point of me trying to take this uh, stock to the Dragon's Den when the senior person in the business thinks it's, you know, crazy idea? Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I'll just leave it and uh, didn't worry about it. Just wrote it up as a hold. And it ended up, you know, Ended up going to one hundred and sixty dollars. Yeah. <laughs> now, now I'm not saying I would have held it to one hundred sixty. I think even Wayne sold it at twenty and bought it back. It's, um, but you couldn't imagine. You know, I just wasn't thinking that Domino's was going to have such great success with online ordering in Australia and then take it overseas and then become the number one, uh, you know, most sort of best franchisee under the global Domino's brand. Yeah. But the time a new geography comes up for a new license or franchisee then the head domino's business goes to don may and his team because they know they're the best yeah mm, makes so sense it's really creative thinking about the long term that's mm. where the money oh it's interesting you say that because yeah it's it's that balance between yeah the the discipline that investing takes from a from a psychological point of view but then as you say you don't you don't want to be so disciplined in the sense that you're not willing to think creatively yeah it's tough uh, i think Things like, yeah, you'll learn these yourselves anyway, but uh, this idea, and they're terrible. They stick with you at the start, but once you get rid of them, they're just ridiculous. But just not buying a stock because it's gone up 50% or something, like it's just Mm. spend all this time looking at the future and here you are letting an old share price stop you from buying something. Uh, I mean, it's it's madness. Um, I'll just give you one more example. Mm. Um, This is the part where I find it's the toughest. So. People who have made a lot of money out of CSL, you talk to people and it's like 70% of their portfolio because they got shares in the IPO in the early 90s. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like no one could have imagined what that, that company would become. Mm. So but there's a lot of luck involved in that, but you create your own luck by just hanging on to the stock and, and you know sticking sticking fat, as we'd say. Yeah. And, and um, so people who have earned that money, I'm like, good on you, because there were five years there where that stock price did nothing. And, and the business didn't look anything as good as what it did today. So if you held on for those five years, like, well done, you've earned the money. Uh, ARB is another classic. It's a little four-wheel drive company that used to be growing pretty quickly and takes yeah. all the insider owner management, cash on the balance sheet, great little niche business. And there was a period where for about five or six years, the earnings you know, hardly went anywhere. And the, even I um, stopped recommending it at Intel's Investor, I think it was about 2014 at $17. And I said, um, you know, I think the earnings per share may have been, I don't know what it was, 50 cents or whatever it was. It looked expensive. And and basically the earnings didn't move for ages. And then two years ago, all of a sudden, 
ARB comes out and announces a couple of contracts in the US supplying Ford, and now the base uh, earnings for share is like a dollar thirty, and <laughs> the price went to fifty eight dollars or something like Jesus. it was. It, it could it should never have went to fifty nine dollars, but um, you know you could argue that we didn't need to sell it at seventeen, should have just hung on, and now it's a thirty dollar business and sort of looks about right. But um, the, the the key point is. If you can't imagine how a company can evolve over time, and, and you don't absolutely have to, because we're talking about things that haven't happened, right? So this is difficult stuff. But you need to identify individuals that can, mm, and yeah. and they're the managers of these companies. They need to be entrepreneurial. They, they need to be investing hard. They need to be never satisfied where the business is, and you need to make sure they're not taking any shortcuts. And, and they're the people who will eventually find opportunities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you spoke about a lot of companies today, Nathan. Um, do you have any like personal favourites or ones that you got on real early and have done really well for you that you want to talk about for a bit? Uh, look, mate, I'm, I'm a broken record and my name is just associated with Frontier, so I, I hate talking about Great it. Great stock. It's the only stock I'm interested in, really. Um, there's, there's, three small caps, there's, there's three small caps I really like at the moment. I think they are genuinely cheap. And one's RPM Global, so it's a little mining software company. Yeah. And that one, I don't. My guess is that the founder and CEO will eventually sell that business for much more than what it's trading at today, if someone comes and offers in the right price. So, mm, yeah. But and so I think the the finish line is um, not as open ended as these other two stocks I'll talk about. So that's sort of not number one on my personal list. But I, I think it is cheap. Um, the, the second, it's been through a massive, uh, should say, just turning into like a software as a service business rather than having the old license revenues where you pay annually. Yeah. Um, that's been a long transition and the profits haven't really come through yet. They were hoping they would have started to come through just now because the revenue growth has been good, but the, uh, the costs have just gone up so much and it's affecting you know, virtually every business out there. So um, mm. it's been delayed and the share price has come off, but I, but I do think that stock is cheap. The, the other two I like is MA Financial, which is the old Molus business. So yep. it's a mini, mini Macquarie group. That's uh, um, Andrew, yeah. Pri- Andrew Pridham and those guys. Exactly. Are, yep. exactly. uh, it's not just the fact that oh, I like AFL football. And <laughs> it's, uh, it's, a, it's a really good story. There's a couple of uh, interviews that have been done with Andrew over time. They're, they're well worth listening to. Just a, um, just a, seems like a really good guy and just someone who's just worked hard and is just very sensible. Mm. Yeah. Thing about the business is it is a people business, and if you read any books about competitive advantage, the one of the riskiest types of businesses is where where is when the talent walks out of the office every night. Yeah. And so and, and you know it's small and it's fairly illiquid, so there are a whole bunch of reasons why again you're not going to put ten or twenty percent of your portfolio in it. But yeah. I, I just think this is a business where the upside is really open ended. And, you know, this whole framework I've told you about trying to think about what a company could become over 10 or 20 years, uh, this is a business that is following in Macquarie's footsteps and we've seen how much value that Macquarie's added since the GFC when it basically became an asset manager mm. and was very opportunistic with the benefit of the help from the central banks during the GFC and it took all this essentially free money and it brought up all these asset managers in America and it was just the best time in basically since the Great Depression to buy asset management businesses and it's mm. made a huge money and goldman sachs for example didn't do that they stuck with their traditional investment banking model and and you know they've basically done nothing since then so the yeah. uh, is really opportunistic which is great and i think math is following in their footsteps and again if they eventually get too big for australia and things slow down they've got the overseas connection through molus in america and you know, who's to say that they don't go over there and slowly build up over time and mm. 
Fund managers uh, can be really risky, as we've seen when they revolve around one individual, like a Magellan, for example. Yeah, yeah. But if you look at other ones overseas that are more diversified and more like a, a Brookfield or some of those mm. giant private equity type style businesses like a KKR or a Polo or whatever, mm. you know, those are that can become massive, massive businesses and still grow well for decades. And so, so math could could become that. Like, who knows? It may not. It. Um, but there's no financial pressure on the business. The stock prices come way down. The people who are running the business seem smart, sensible. They're well helmed by Andrew, who's not. I don't think he's. Um, he's not officially the executive anymore, but he's worked with the two guys he's brought up who are running the business day to day, and he's there for them whenever he needs, uh, whenever they need. Um, so it just ticks a lot of boxes for me, and it's just a small business that I think could become a much larger one over time. Mm. Uh, and the other one is Frontier and. Um, you know, people who anyone who listens to me will be sick of hearing about this stock, but <laughs> um, very quickly for anyone who hasn't heard the story, it's Sean Di Gregorio left REA Group. He was there from 2002 to 2009, so a huge growth period for REA Group. Mm. Got poached <laughs> and, and went to buy property, and the share price went up tenfold while he ran that <laughs> in a very short period. Uh, it was basically the Southeast Asian versions of uh, realestate.com.au. Yep. Then he sold it back to his previous employer, um, which quickly became their write-offs. <laughs> and, uh, so you know that Sean knows how to do a deal. Yep. Uh, good to know. And uh, and what Sean did with that is he actually took some of his own money and bought into Zameen, which is the realestate.com.au of Pakistan. Yeah. Yep. And then uh, then he got some investors, including his previous employers at uh, iProperty Group, uh, Catcher, and got together and they created frontier digital ventures and that listed in 2006 at 50 cents and today you know i bought shares at 50 cents um the share price is 70 cents odd maybe less today yeah and the share price has basically gone nowhere in seven years and when i look at the business compared to what it was then to what it is now it's just chalk and cheese it's just a completely different business and Mm. Mm. um the problem at the moment is pakistan looks like it's going broke and the imf is uh, really pushing the com- uh, country to make a bunch of changes, which they've actually implemented, cr- all credit to them, and mm. um, to raise money because inflation, uh, particularly for a country that uh, imports so much food and energy, which are where the two of the biggest costs are, mm. uh, plus you've borrowed overseas money in US dollars when interest rates are just taking off. Yeah. Uh, like it's just smashed the the country, and it's just um, it's, no, it's no surprise that was always the risk going in, and that's the main reason that a lot of investors that I've spoken to don't own the stock. But I just look at the valuation, and if the Pakistan currency doesn't collapse, mm. then that that investment in Zameen is potentially worth four to five hundred million dollars alone, and you can buy the entire frontier stock at the moment for two hundred fifty million dollars. And if, if Zameen is worth Australian $500 million at the moment, and my guess is it's more conservative even if the currency um, doesn't collapse. But um, but nonetheless, if it was, then my guess is that Latin American business is worth over $2 billion, um, or, or at least will be when the when it matures, assuming you know, big competitors don't just completely steal their market positions. Mm. So you've got a business here with the potential of being over $2.5 billion business with a guy with all his money on the line in that business, and and you can understand why people don't like it. Like it's just it's Pakistan, it's Latin America, it's um, you know people just don't want to know about it, and I, and I get that. But this is a guy who's done it all before, and has far better insight to the businesses than anyone else. And everything that is controllable within the business has has worked out how you wanted it to. Mm. Zameen 
the meme wasn't the guaranteed winner in 2016. It is now, and it's all anyone talks about. Mm. So the, the things holding it back at the moment are really the currency. And if if the currency doesn't collapse in Pakistan, like this really should be trading at least two dollars automatically. But there's a there's a case of this business being north being worth well over five bucks over time and maybe more over time. But the, the other issue at the moment too is I expect the company, uh, Sean's going to raise some more money, uh, yep. which always puts the share price because he keeps talking about acquisitions and he has no cash so i think it's um, <laughs> <laughs> that's the only solution I, i'm aware of and uh, so i expect that'll come at some point yeah uh, well, mm. well will, will works at morgan's so uh, <laughs> if he needs a hand with a cap raise uh, my co-host will can <laughs> throw his hand up yeah, for I'll that just do it for him <laughs> <laughs> um awesome so nathan um just before we wrap up i suppose one one question i was really keen to ask um what do you think the major factors that determine the success of an investor are? Yeah, it's funny. Um, I've been thinking a lot about this lately just through my own life and not because I had an interview coming up. But for, <laughs> I'd really ask yourself, you know, do you want to be wealthy and and be a, a, a sort of wealth, I don't know, wealth creator, entrepreneur type of person? Or do you just want a job being an analyst? and Or is being an analyst a good way to get employed and learn more and then when you've got enough money do you want to go and start your own fund mm. so they're all questions i think you need to answer because if i was 10 years younger i'd actually go out on my own and have a crack but i just i'm too old and tired and, and angry and bitter <laughs> <laughs> I, I just don't have the energy and I, and I like the team i work with so mm. um, i'm not going to be doing that but if i was younger and i had to learn everything i know now younger i would definitely want to go out on my own and do it my way um mm. that's one and if and if that's the case, then being a great investor is just behavioural. It, it's more uh, about having discipline, focusing on where you believe you're going to make money, and just not straying from that. And you'll go through long periods where you don't do anything, mm. um, and it's a very unusual job, um, but I, but it's a really enjoyable one. But if you're um, want to be an analyst and just make sure you get a job, then my recommendation is you still got to go and do the work. You need. Basically, if you want to get your CV in front of someone and you want to get a job, you, you really need to be able to tell that fund manager your three best ideas and, and what makes a good business and, you know, why, why stocks get cheap and really go into detail on those companies. So if you haven't done that, then you'll just spend years doing what I did, which is just getting rejection letters. <laughs> <laughs> so two very different ways to think about things, but um, but one can help with the other. And um, but but I, I actually think it's really enjoyable to go out and have a crack on your own if you can. So the, mm. the earlier you get a job in the industry and get the experience, um, the better it is. I, I just didn't get my first job till I was 30 and I don't really feel like I knew exactly what I wanted to do and took a bunch of experiences to go through to get to the point where I actually thought I would like to go out on my own. But but you also yeah. need to be able to do that as well, right? You, I've got three kids and a wife and um, you know just, just never knew anyone with any money. Um, mm. So... But uh, if you can make some mistakes early and learn a lot and find a couple of investors that might back you when you don't need a lot of money to live off, mm. uh, you, you can always go back and get a job as an analyst after that too. So uh, I really recommend thinking about that because there's a lot more people doing it themselves these days. And the, the old ways of getting a job, I thought being an accountant would get me a job as an analyst and it didn't. And those times have changed already. I did my CFA, I did the Securities Institute course, I've got all my meal tickets accounted for nothing. So wow. so you still need to know what you're doing essentially before you get a job and the only way that is to do that is to go and work out what the best businesses are, why stocks get cheap and come up with your own ideas and it takes time but it, it's enjoyable. 
Yeah. No, well, Nathan, we've learned a lot today from you. Um, That's a great last piece of advice there as well. Yeah, yeah, great last piece of advice for, I suppose, anyone around our age or potentially up to, as you said, that 30, 35, looking to potentially where they're going to go next in their career. And I guess Mm. it's sometimes thinking... Yeah, okay, I, I do know this. I do know this well, this this particular area. And, um, yeah, having the guts to go and do it. Yeah, and the right time, right timing's also got to be in your favour as well. Yeah. Yeah, there's plenty of shortcuts too. Like you want to, unfortunately, with the guitar, I just want to play songs and I don't actually do the hard work to get <laughs> which, Yeah, yeah exactly. Which really compromises my ability to get better. Um, but it's the same with investing. You know, you sign up for invest Intel's investor for two weeks for nothing, and just go and pull down all the special reports and read <laughs> as much as you can, and read the right books. You know, don't yeah. read too. My advice is not to read too much. Actually, is to read some of the basics, like go and read all of Warren Buffett's investor letters. Yeah, yeah. And Peter Lynch's uh, one up on Wall Street. Yeah. And then just be careful about what you read after that, because you can disappear down a wormhole for twenty years and then realise you you would have been better off just keeping it simple, as I did. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Nathan. Um, we really appreciate it, and we've learned a lot about investing and um, not just investing, but behavioural side of business as well. So thank you very much. Yeah, really appreciate it. Thanks, Nathan. My pleasure, boys. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the business of. If you enjoyed the show, please consider rating and following us on your chosen podcast platform, LinkedIn and Instagram, as it helps others find us. 